The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast. I'm sitting here in our San Francisco offices with a gentleman named Dennis McWilliams. Uh, Dennis is a former client. Uh, he is currently a venture partner at Sante Ventures and a managing director for SparkMed Advisors. Welcome, Dennis. Aaron, great. Thanks to be here. Well, it's good to have you here. And you and I were just reminiscing a little bit about Austin because you live in Austin, but you're out visiting us. I lived in Austin for six years. And so maybe we'll get a little bit of uh, Austin love into the the conversation here. But uh, I want to start actually with something that is relevant to Austin, and that's your university days because you did, if my um, research is correct, your uh, undergrad at University of Texas, UT, and then Stanford, and you focused on engineering. I know to some degree why you sort of headed in this direction, but you ended up in healthcare, um, working on med device and things like that. But talk about how you made that transition, because if I'm not mistaken, I think you studied uh, aeronautical uh, engineering at UT, and then that ultimately morphed at some point in time. So talk about that. Right. I had dreams of being a rocket scientist earlier in my career, and um, I believe when I graduated, probably the worst time to graduate with an aerospace uh, degree, peace had broken out around the world. You couldn't get a job as an aerospace engineer. Damn that piece. (laughs) So I needed to make a transition. um, And I had just really gotten excited about the concept of being an entrepreneur very early um, through some project management courses. But um, at that point, there weren't any real structured programs of, uh, you know, master's programs to help you become an entrepreneur. You know, that was kind of, um, you know, taboo for the business schools typically. And there were really no other programs. So the closest program I found was an engineering management program at Stanford. Um, And it was a small group. And it was basically meant to take engineers and turn them into entrepreneurs and, and give them a taste of business. And so um, I was out here in the early 90s, you know, in the uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Apple Next Computer Days and um, Sun Microsystems and a lot of those titans were in their heyday. And, um, you know, these people would come into our classes at Stanford and, and talk about um, entrepreneurship. And I get really excited about it and just decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur with full anticipation of being something in software or something on the electronic side based on my background. Um, and my first job was for a think tank. I worked for a guy named George Kosmetsky, who was one of the founders of Teledyne and um, was going to do exactly that, software technologies. And when I showed up first day of work, they had a healthcare project and no one to work on it. So I became the healthcare expert. And that's how my career started. Well, it's great. And I always love to find out, you know, particularly people that get into healthcare, how they did. Some people had parents that were doctors or yeah. there was an illness in the family. And some people... You know, just fall into it just like fall I did. Into it. And I've had a few guests like that. And, you know, you got there as fast as you could. Right. I do want to mention as a side note, um, because looking at my research, I noticed that you did go to Westlake High School, which is the high school that my daughter went to for a couple of years before moving out. More importantly, to uh, pretty big name NFL quarterbacks in Drew Brees and um, Nick Foles, who I believe faced off uh, two years ago in the uh, NFC East, NFC. I think so. Um those I, I actually have, yeah, it's a great uh, um, turned into a great football school. I, I played football there. We were the first five A playoff school, and uh, I have two boys. One's a junior, plays uh, for Westlake uh, on the offensive line, and then I have an eighth grader who's going to be hopefully playing there next year. So keeping that football tr- tr- tradition going. Well, very cool, and it's a pretty good feeder school for the UT uh, football program. So who knows, right? Um, so related again to Austin, but in 2005, you started a company called Apollo Endosurgery, 
It's a medical device company focused on the treatment of obesity, something that uh, America and the world is, is dealing with increasingly. Let's talk a little bit about the company and more importantly, your personal journey as one of the leaders. And I think this speaks to a theme that will come up several times today, and that's the entrepreneurship and how you have really pursued that entrepreneurship. And as you mentioned, because there weren't really the programs early days when you're studying, you had to be the ultimate entrepreneur and really sort of forge your own path. Yeah, build your own path. No, for sure. Um, you know, Apollo came out of, I had previously uh, co-founded a biotechnology company um, in the late 90s that uh, eventually became acquired. And um, I was an entrepreneur residence at a venture fund at the time. And in 2005, uh, biotech was in one of its uh, one of its troughs in the doldrums. And so no one really wanted to be a biotech entrepreneur at that time. So I made the prescient decision to move over to medical devices, which had real revenue and tangible products. Um, and you know, it's ironic how biotech has swum, swum back with the storm now. But um, no, you know, Apollo was a really interesting story. I mean, we literally started that in a coffee shop. Um, you know, it was myself. I hired the first engineers. Um, we licensed a tremendous amount of intellectual property from five different universities. And our initial focus was on just basically non-invasive surgery, doing surgery with flexible surgical devices that could go through your mouth um, and do surgery from the inside out. Um, and so, you know, for me as an entrepreneur, you know, it, yeah, I, I kind of went through every phase. When we started the company, we were heavily engineering focused, uh, very R&D focused, um, which was a really fun and exciting time. Um, you know, then we went through the regulatory trials, the clinical testing, um, and, you know, then transitioned over into commercialization. And so when, when I left, we had 250 employees around the world, 100 sales reps and, and different parts of, of the planet. Um, so I, you know, very rarely as an entrepreneur do you get to see, a, you know, a company from the inside transition from a very small entity to something large. And, and that was really, um, really exciting and very difficult at times, of course. Um, but, a, you know, overall, a really great entrepreneurial journey. Well, it, and I didn't have this in the, the pre-notes, but it does strike me as appropriate since, you know, your current role in doing this advising and being a venture partner, you get to teach or sort of talk to other companies about best practices and do's and don'ts. So, you know, what were a few things that you learned, maybe like a, a don't and then a few do's yeah. during your time in the No, it's, it's great. I mean, in, you know, a lot of it, I had to learn personally just from the School of Hard Knocks, so, you know, making my own mistakes. And, um, but, you know, fortunately, I had some good mentors and had very good investors um, through the times at Apollo. They were very supportive of me. Um, you know, I had PTV Sciences, HIG Capital, some really good uh, med tech investors who really helped me along with my career and, and helped me with those lessons. So for me now, it's been a transition. You know, I've just my entire life spent being the entrepreneur and then now, to your point, I'm investing in entrepreneurs and working with them. Um, and I've found that so far to be very, uh, very fulfilling. Um, just, you know, love seeing the energy and the enthusiasm. Um, and then sharing some of those life lessons that, that I've had um, and helping them be successful entrepreneurs, successful CEOs, but more importantly, helping their companies be successful. And um, I'm having fun with that. And, and, and that's been good. Well, that's great. And I'm sure they're lucky to have you. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about some of the companies that you're advising and investing in. And then what role do you take? Because I'm, you know, I know with Sante, at least there are lots of you. And so, you know, is it around CEO ship? Is it around like, what is it that your particular uh, focus is? You know, like any venture fund, you know, every every partner has their um, their areas of specialty and stuff. And, you know, where I you know, want to be adding the most value is clearly helping our entrepreneurs and helping our CEOs. Asante uh, uniquely is an early stage investor um, in medical devices. Um, and there aren't many early stage medical device investors that are out there. Um, and because we've made that choice as a, as a firm that that's where we want to play, um, it is very entrepreneur forward and very 
entrepreneur friendly. We mainly work with first time CEOs. Um, so we work with CEOs that have oftentimes come out of academic labs or come out of their physician practices. So we have a lot of experience in kind of working with them and helping them make that transition uh, into an early stage company. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to kind of beef up that, that um, experience and be able to really partner up with these entrepreneurs and help them be successful. And as you're doing that, what uh, what are the things that you look for? I've, I've had a few different venture capitalists on the, the podcast, and I'm always interested to see, you know, what are the one or two, three check boxes that they look yeah. for when they're doing that? Certainly, yeah. you mentioned the academic thing. I think that's helpful, right? Because you know that they had to prove, do, do proof of concept. Yeah, you certainly want to look for, I mean, I mean, for me, I want to look for a spark, right? I mean, I want to look for somebody who's really passionate about the idea that they're working on, who has a vision for it. I mean, because... You know, it's not always going to be easy. And I think if you don't have an underlying passion for yourself personally in terms of why you're doing a company, um, you know, one, how do you motivate yourself? But more importantly, how do you motivate your team? Because there are going to be times when, you know, you're not going to be paying bonuses. Heck, you, you may miss a, a payroll at one point. And, you know, I know for us at Apollo, it was that underlying vision that we were going to really change surgery that often got many of us through that. And so um, I want to see that. Um, and then the other piece that is is really important, I think it's probably one of the harder skills to learn, is just, you know, a self-awareness um, of what you're good at and what you're not good at as a CEO. I, I think first-time CEOs feel a tremendous amount of pressure that they have to be experts on everything. Um, and that's impossible, right? And you, know, you can't be an expert on commercial launching of a product, the basic science of a technology and quality systems. It's impossible to do that. And so learning to rely upon experts, learning how to hire people who are smarter than you in functional areas and being comfortable with that as a CEO, I mean, I really look for that because if you don't have that, you're going to run into blind spots. You're going to, um, you know, you're not going to have the capacity to manage that company. And that becomes a really challenging conversation at the end. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the folks that I've interviewed in the past have been more late stage investors and they have the benefit of wanting to pick teams that have already had some success, right, have already been CEOs. And to your point, it's tricky because you're, you're, it's like single A ball, right? If you're doing a sports analogy, you're getting them early. They seem to have a good track record, but there's no you know, guarantee that they're going to grow up and be a professional athlete. Right? Yeah, but also I think the other part is that the needs of the company um, change over time. So again, in the early stages of a company, it's very R&D and engineering focused. And the CEO skill set required to manage that is completely different than the skill set required to manage salespeople on a commercial team. Um, and it, I think it's difficult for entrepreneurs to make that transition at times. And I did it, but I was lucky. I had some board members who had some very great commercial experience and I had a really great commercial team. And so um, that that made it easier for me to do that. But again, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that transition. And, you know, when you hear about venture capital funds replacing CEOs, oftentimes it's because of that. It's not because the CEO is not talented and not good at what they did. It's just the company needs something different now. And so, you know, I just believe in being open about those conversations. And, and you know, as we work with our CEOs, you know, kind of make sure they're aware of where their blind starts are, have open conversations about where the company's needs are going to go from a, from a leadership perspective over time. But and giving them the opportunity and giving them the coaching to help them make that transition if they're capable of doing it. Yeah, it's critical. And it is one of those hard things because, you know, not many people can depersonalize the, I founded this company, I should be the CEO. It's like, no, you, you might have great skills, but it may not be the ones. And actually, very often, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, is one of the few, in addition to like the Steve Jobs and the, you know, Bill Gates of the world, and even them eventually stepped aside or moved into other roles and stepped back. So it is rare that you get someone that sticks with it. I mean, we're lucky with Jim Weiss here. Jim's been doing this for 20 years, and he's grown as a CEO from a company that started 
at zero to you know what will be probably a three or four hundred million dollar company in the next couple of years. So yeah, no, it, it, those are rare, and I, I think the capability you see is that you know one of the knocks that venture capital traditionally has on founder CEOs from a technology perspective is their inability to separate maybe a technology from the company. Um, you know, because once you have professional investors in, I mean, it is about getting that return there. And yes, your core technology may be the engine that is meant to get you there. But, you know, as we like to say, sometimes the baby's ugly <laughs> and you need to be able to say that as a CEO and as, as an entrepreneur to be able to look at um, things you know, with data dispassionately and then make recommendations to your board and your investors that, hey, maybe we need to transition to something else because this isn't working. I think founders a lot of times struggle with that because they are very passionate about it and you want that. But I think there's a fine line in making sure that you can just kind of switch over and look at these things from different perspectives. Yeah, no, it's a critical lesson. Um, so speaking of lessons. According to my research, you currently teach an international course called BEST, and it's dedicated to teaching both medical and engineering students the process of innovation in healthcare. As we talked about earlier, you know, that whole entrepreneurial spirit is a tricky one, and I've always wondered, can you teach innovation? So talk a little bit about what the course is and then how you go about sort of teaching innovation in this particular space. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you know, BEST has uh, been one of those passions of mine that I've been doing for nine years, and it was the vision of uh, a surgeon colleague in, in France who does a lot of minimally invasive surgery, um, doing a lot of innovative things, and realized that med students and, and surgeons in particular aren't necessarily good about thinking about the process of innovation and they want to do something about it. So she created a course called Best and recruited myself and a number of other successful entrepreneurs to uh, to come help uh, teach these students. And I mean, I think it's a good question. Can you teach innovation? Can you teach um, entrepreneurship? I think you know, the answer is yes. I mean, you know, what we try to teach are the basic building blocks of how do you take a, a technology concept and turn it into a product that's on the market. So we t- talk about, you know, the identification of a need. Um, we, you know, we talk about the brainstorming process. And then we talk about selecting and developing concepts based on regulatory, reimbursement factors, development factors, and then try to help them learn, you know, how you build a financing plan around that. So you can teach those basic building blocks, but there is a bit of a Darwinian process as well that, you know, we may teach 30 students in a particular course, and maybe only three or four of them will really kind of catch that fire wanting to be the entrepreneur. Um, I mean, it happened to me earlier in my career. I mean, somebody gave a talk, and I just got really excited about it and decided that was what I wanted to do with my life. Um, the other ones we kind of consider were planting seeds so that later in their careers, whether they're a practicing surgeon or, you know, we have a lot of engineers take this who are going to go on to work for big companies. When they do have that aha moment where they see a need and they have an idea of how to fix that, they kind of have some um, so have a framework to think about that innovation moving forward, and that's the goal of Best. It's a one week course. We teach it um, in Strasbourg, France, in in in, uh, in August uh, for med students and for engineering students. We've added one in Taiwan now, um, and we're doing another one in Brazil at the end of this year, uh, and the next year we're adding a course in Rwanda. And what what I'm excited about actually is you know I think in each one of those ecosystems, um, you know the drivers of entrepreneurship and innovation are going to be very different. You know, developing an innovation for Western Europe is going to be very different than Sub-Saharan Africa. And so uh, I think we're excited to see how that curriculum changes. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, you know, such different stages and such different philosophies on and, you know, such upside in, in all of those areas. So very cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the trends we're seeing in, in, in investing in medical devices is just the globalization of innovation. You know, it used to be if you were looking in a, a medical area for innovation, you could you know, hit the West Coast here, you could hit the Boston area and kind of expect to find the, the best technology in a particular area. That's completely changed. And we're finding world-class technology innovation happening in all parts of the world. Sante's invested in a number 
number of technologies that uh, move from other parts of the world to the United States and have been very successful. And so, you know, I think having that that global view of innovation is really important. And then realizing, yeah, to your point, that it could be very different depending on where that ecosystem is. Well, I'd love to ask a bigger picture question. Um, that, that's been a fun conversation, but you've had the unique ability to spend a lot of time in this space, doing entrepreneurial things, running your own company, now advising and, and investing other companies. Um, I'd love to get your take over the next, you know, 20, uh, the next five to 10 years, 20 years is too, too far out. But um, what, what do you see, you know, how do you see the healthcare space changing? Well, I, I think there's just there, one of the things we're excited about as investors is there is such transformation going to be happening and already happening. Um, you know, starting just with with technical innovation. I mean, some of the new technologies and the ability to capture data and process data is just really transforming what we can do um, in terms of new therapeutics. And um, I, you know, clearly that's very exciting and kind of the forefront of what what we see. But I think probably the bigger changes are probably what's happening in healthcare services and how we deliver healthcare. And I mean, yesterday Amazon just announced uh, they finally they've launched their uh, own internal uh, healthcare platform. Um, you know, doing kind of telehealth combined with home visits, um, going directly at uh, thinking about how you solve that provider issue for for their their employees. And you know, we actually have an investment in a company called Remedy Health that's doing the same thing in Austin. You know, they partnered with Whole Foods, and and so I think those are probably the more fundamental changes. That that we see happening over the next five to 10 years where I think just employers are, are getting fed up with the cost of delivery themselves. It's just a, it's a P&L issue. And so they're finding their own solutions. I think we'd all like to see the government fix this, but I have very little faith that um, <laughs> that our political system today can do that. Um, so it's great to see these large organizations and Walmart announced uh, you know, their deal today. So I think th- that's probably going to drive more fundamental changes. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see what role innovation plays in that. I mean, in some areas, innovation will be an enabler, uh, that transformation. So the ability to deliver health virtually, you know, home diagnostics, uh, home therapies are going to be really, really interesting. Um, but what happens to some of those big pieces of capital equipment that we that we see investing in, you know, robotics is a huge area right now in medical devices. And, you know, how will that be impacted by this change? I don't think anybody really knows yet. Well, that's a great answer, and we've had a lot of guests on that have spoken to the telemedicine piece and the innovation and the technology. So you're not alone in your uh, in your forecasting there. I do have a more pragmatic sort of you know today question, and that is, as someone that is helping to change the face of healthcare. If you could change one thing today, what would it be and why? God, I'd pay, change the payer system, um, you know, reimbursement, particularly in medical devices. If you think about what's the greatest hindrance to a new innovation, and that's the way we pay for and reimburse technology. I mean, you, know, you can used to be everybody is worried about getting through the FDA. Um, and while the FDA you know, still can be a hurdle for a lot of technologies, it's a reasonably predictable one. And there's a time frame we can put against that. There's a financial model and return model that investors can put against that. What has become exceedingly difficult is then you get that approval and you go to validate the commercial market. And you know, let's say you have a brand new type of innovation that could be better and cheaper than things that are out there without having a code, without having um, you know, pairs understanding what you're doing. It's almost impossible to get that paid for. And so a lot of medical device companies in particular struggle and fail um, during that zone of their early commercialization. And so Frankly, what it's forced over time is, is you know, kind of a trend I call incrementalism, where as opposed to really doing groundbreaking fundamental changes in med- medical devices, 
we're focused on these little incremental changes where, you know, there's an existing code, existing procedure, so we develop a slightly better widget that's better than the other widgets that are out there, and that can take market share away from a particular company, and so that company acquires it. And and that's been the model we've been running on uh, for a while, and I think it's really stifled true innovation. And so, you know, now that we see some of these things coming from kind of, you know, non-traditional healthcare areas in terms of innovating, um, you know, I think they take different a different approach to that. Um, I, the example I love to give is I contrast um, the development of robotic surgery. You know, intuitive, the, the fundamental technologies there were uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and they did their, um, you know, I think their 10,000th case um, took them almost 10, 10 years to get to um, and just a really long 20-year cycle. Um, the scooters, which I've noticed here in San Francisco, you've banned all the scooters, but in Austin, they're prolific around the city. Um, they did their 10 millionth ride in 12 months after launching. And so I just think the ability to scale outside of healthcare has, has, um, has really been interesting to see. And, and we're not good at that in, in medtech. And I think reimbursement is the main reason why. Well, it's interesting. That's a, a great answer. And it is in- interesting as well. We do have some scooters here, but definitely not as prolific as Austin. I don't know if you've watched on Netflix yet the uh, I'm blanking on the exact name but the mapping Bill's mind it was the inside Bill Gates you know story and what was particularly interesting is without any spoiler alerts it's three episodes and it talks about you know a little bit of the history and sort of where he came from and how he became what he was but what I really loved is talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and three main areas of focus for them so one was water purity and sanitation Second was polio, and the third was uh, nuclear energy. And they're pretty good sort of success stories for the first two. And the third, I won't be the spoiler alert, but something very similar to what you're saying, which you have this great sort of outside-the-box solution, and then all of a sudden it gets stymied at the last minute because of external factors, in this case related to government. And it is unfortunate that you can't have these big breakthroughs in spite of big brains, big investments in the area. So... Who knows how we'll get over that hump, but um, yeah, interesting I mean, analogy. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. And, and, and if you look at their approach to that at Bill and the Gates Foundation, I mean, they, they have been very thoughtful about how they do the market development side of that. I think they realize the importance of having kind of commercial forces help pull these technologies through. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just hard. It's a difficult problem, especially when you're trying to solve it for a really large population base. Well, especially there seem to be so many great technologies out there. And if this is the holdup, right, it, it is a true barrier to getting it done. I know there's a woman we will reference in this uh, podcast I did with Ben Wanamaker from Aetna, CBS Health. And we talked about this technology, um, Mary Lou Jepson, and it's called Open Water. And the idea is to do MRI technology in a beanie size and then a belt size with like a thousand times the resonance, thousand or a hundred times less cost. And you think about something like that, what it could do for health that's going to have a lot of hurdles ahead of it, right? Just because of the fact that to your point, even if it's a lot cheaper than an MRI machine, if it's say a thousand dollars or 5,000 or 10,000, like, you know, are we going to be able to get our health benefits to pay for something like that? Yeah. Well, and you look at, uh, your butterfly networks with the handheld ultrasound and, you know, you know, really the commoditization of a lot of that advanced technology could be really exciting and then open up dollars for better therapy. Um, but the system's not really set up that way. And the pods of dollars that, you know, go for diagnosis don't always flow through on the treatment side. And I mean, fundamentally with our healthcare system, the biggest challenge is, is we're incentivized based on utilization. So at the end of the day, I mean, this concept that if the hospital and the physicians are going to make their revenues, which they clearly need to make, 
they only get there by actually doing something, whether that thing that they're doing is needed or not, or is cost effective or not. There's no real incentive in the system to do that. And so I think, you know, some of these new experiments in accountable care organizations and some of these new healthcare models, you look at what Amazon's doing, that will put real commercial pressure on these things. And, and maybe what it'll do is start to free up dollars to, to go towards some of these newer technologies that can actually address costs. Well, let's hope that's the case. Yeah, I'd like to be the optimist at times. <laughs> no, and I appreciate that because I, I am a big, I am a glass half full kind of guy. And I do know that some of these big companies getting involved, like the Walmarts, you know, the what CVS and Walgreens and companies are doing, the whole telemedicine, you know, piece is changing the game. And um, I think it doesn't have any choice but to change. It just is going to take time and it's going to take pressure and smart people like yourself helping to, to move it forward. Um, this is where I like to shift gears and focus a little bit more on the individual and things, you know, about you. And speaking of one of the questions I like to ask guests is to tell us something about yourself that maybe people don't know that you're willing to share. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, I, I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question. It's always a struggle. Like, what do you want people to know about you that you haven't disclosed already? Like that, you know, bad tattoo or... <laughs> yeah, no, no tattoos or anything like that. Um... I guess probably a unique fact is um, I, I, I've actually uh, officiated uh, a wedding ceremony before. Um, I, one of my really good friends who worked for me at Apollo um, asked me to marry him and his bride. So I got licensed to do that in the state of Texas, which I had no idea you could do, but apparently is uh, is a thing. So uh, that's a little known factoid, I guess. That's a cool one. And uh, it's funny because my wife actually did that for her sister and had to go through and she did it in California and there's a whole online course that you can take and get <laughs> the ordained. online course in Texas was a little simpler I can promise you <laughs> I'm sure that is probably true um second one I like to find out is just to help readers build their library if there's a book that you've read you know over the last few months few years that really spoke to you and you know why and what would you share yeah gosh I'm not a I'm not a huge business book reader necessarily I, I tend to like my reading I like to kind of be a little separate from my day-to-day -day entrepreneurial life but I, I did go through this trend of actually when we were starting Apollo um, I, I got into the sea novel kind of craze and you know the 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 thought of leading a ship at sea in the 1800s you know to me was very very similar to what we were going through at Apollo so I read the Patrick O'Brien series master and commander series um, which was uh, 23 volumes 6,200 pages <laughs> that I did over a three-year period during uh, some really uh, good and then stressful stages of Apollo industry surgery and it it really detailed the the life of um of a, of a young uh, lieutenant and going through their career and 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 uh, that career growing and the in the way that they have to management leadership um on a ship and the and managing those stresses i took a lot of great lessons for that um you know good leadership bad leadership uh, how to inspire a team under stressful situations it was really great really um worthwhile investment of time up until um, it turns out that the author died before he finished the series. So after 6,200 pages, I don't know how it ended. So uh, that was probably the only uh, real problem with that book series. So I'll, I'll be a spoiler for your – I don't want to be responsible for somebody going through that same jersey, uh, uh, journey and not being warned about it at the end. Well, we appreciate that. I will say I like that a lot because I think – Certainly, if you've been a CEO or a leader and you want to write a book and inspire people, you have the credibility. But that is one where, you know, that military piece and particularly adding the at sea piece, because it does create 
unusual stresses between weather and tight, you know, conditions. So yeah, you're on an island. I also read um, Ernest Shackleton. There was this big Ernest Shackleton thing in the early 2000s. So I read several books on that. And you know, he famously rescued his uh, maroon team of about 25 individuals through probably one of the most stressful situations that you could. And I don't know, I just those things resonated with me. And, um, you know, clearly, you can't compare being stranded on Antarctica to running a startup. But there are days it feels like that. Well, and you have to come up with things that either don't exist or require extraordinary solutions, right? So again, I like that idea of, yes, anyone can tell someone to you know be more disciplined with your time or pick this, but when you are making life and death decisions, and clearly in business, you're not necessarily doing that for your physical being, but you are making those decisions for the company, right? So it is important to really understand how do you make those decisions with a lot of times lack of information with a lot of duress and a lot of people breathing down your neck. Yeah. And I think the other lesson it brought to me was, uh, you know, how much leadership is service. Uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people get hung up with the CEO being, you know, being the leader and, and this concept of being the boss. But at the end of the day, to me, you know, the CEO and, and these leaders who've been successful, I mean, it's about service, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're helping your team be really successful and, you know, you're there to mentor them and, and help them work together. Um, and, and that aspect of leadership, um, you know, the ability to work as hard as your team, dig in there with them, I think is such an important piece, particularly in startups, because, you know, there's no room for hierarchies. At the end of the day, yes, you have to make the decisions as the CEO. Yes, you, you're the one ultimately responsible. Um, but if your team doesn't see you and they're toiling with them and, and and pushing that, it's hard for them to respond when things get really tough. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And back to a reference you made about islands, you know, we'll wrap up with our final question. And um, you're on a theoretical deserted island or desert island. Um, you can take one album with you. Which album would you pick and why? Well, you know, I want to let it be noted that the podcast uh, Desert Island series allows you to take seven albums or six albums, I believe. So I think the fact that we only get one is a challenge here. Um, you know, I, I'm a big Wilco fan and I think, yeah, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is one of the best albums that they ever made. And, um, yes, after much deliberating on this, that I think that's the one that I would take if I was only allowed one. Well, it's a great choice. And I don't think anyone out of the hundred plus that we've done have ever, no one's picked a Wilco album. I, I'm from Austin, so I had to be a little eclectic in my music Well, it's a choices. good choice. And I, I will say, while they're not one of my favorite bands, I do appreciate them. And I've actually seen them a couple times, including at the Austin City Limits Theater versus the actual festival. Saw them in uh, Indianapolis with my friend Jay Bear, who's a huge Wilco fan. So, Jay, if you're listening in, your ears should perk up. So, But I like that, and that's sort of a fitting way to end the show. Um, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2, host of the What to Know podcast. We've just spent the last 25, 30 minutes with Dennis McWilliams. Dennis is the venture partner at Sante Ventures and a managing director for SparkMed Advisors. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for making your way out here to California. To do Aaron, yeah, really great to be here with the W2O team. I've enjoyed working with you guys in the past and look forward to some great projects in the future. Awesome. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.